well, good morning. And I have to say that uh, not only am I thankful, but I'm also excited to have this opportunity to share God's word with you at this time. And with that said, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me now to 1 John chapter 5, where we will be uh, concentrating our attention <clears throat> on verses 18 through 21. Again, that is 1 John chapter 5, 18 through 21. And as you're turning there, uh, this is a a letter along with John's other two letters I greatly appreciate and I've grown to do so more and more as we were preaching through this about a year ago at this time back in our church in Wisconsin. So again, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And as they would say in the early church, after the reading of the Holy Scriptures, this is the word of the Lord, to which then the congregation would respond, thanks be to God. Now throughout this first letter of John's, And if we were to do a whole sweep through the entire epistle, we would see that John is concerned about many different things as he is, as a pastor, trying to shepherd the church most likely in Ephesus. And he's concerned about uh, as to whether one is in Christ on three grounds on moral grounds, on doctrinal grounds, and even on social grounds. And also we see here, in this regard, that John is concerned about the believer's assurance. Now in this concluding section of his epistle, he takes all of these different themes up again, reminding his readers, and certainly by extension us, of what we should know and indeed do know, thereby concluding with very three candid certainties introduced with the clause, we know. Now, you'll notice here in this text that these are not tentative, hesitant suggestions, but rather they are bold, dogmatic affirmations, which are beyond all dispute and which neatly summarized the truths that John was developing all throughout this epistle. And so, with that said, here's the main point of this passage for us this morning. That as believers, we are called by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit to live in the reality of three certainties. And to live in these three certainties we, again, by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit, live according 
to what we actually are in Christ. And so here's the first certainty. Anyone born of God does not continue in sin. Anyone born of God does not continue in sin. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Well, this first assertion concerns every child of God. And it tells us that the new birth, far from being some momentary emotional religious experience, has a continuing result. The one born of God remains his child with permanent privileges and obligations. Now, one of these obligations is expressed in the phrase, does not keep on sinning. Now, the previous two verses, 16 and 17, uh, which concern sin, and indeed uh, address the ideas to whether or not uh, about a, a sin leading to death, that all applied to unbelievers. Now, it's a very different case altogether for the one who's been born of God. Now, this verse expresses the truth that, that um, not that we don't slip in to acts of sin, because if that were the case, we all, every single one of us in this room, including myself, would be in significant trouble. But rather... What John is saying here is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if we are in Christ, we don't treat sin casually. And we don't live in sin as a lifestyle with complete and total indifference. Because the new birth results in new behavior. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, and let's be honest, every single day with all of us they do meet. Because John says earlier in his epistle, if that weren't the case, then what does he say we are? He says that we're liars, and the truth is not in us. But then he goes on to say early on in that epistle... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which tells us then, if we take the entire epistle into consideration, that part of what John is addressing here includes repenting and confessing our sin regularly with the full assurance that God will and has forgiven us on account of Christ's death for those sins in our place. In short, brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Now the apostle proceeds to give the reason for his assurance that the Christian does not continue to sin. And in so doing, he introduces it with a strong conjunction, but... We are able to avoid this state to which we would be naturally inclined of deliberately persisting in habitual sin as a lifestyle because God keeps or protects us, as we see in this verse. We can hope to keep God's commands if the Son of God himself keeps or protects us. Let's look at the rest of verse 18 in this regard. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, 
this raises a question, which the verse also answers for us. Well, why do we need to be protected? If we are born of God, are we immune to temptation? Well, obviously no. The devil, the evil one, is maliciously active. Strong and subtle, he is more than a match for any of us. But then, as we would recall if we were to look back at chapter 3, verse 8, that the Son of God came to destroy the devil's work, and if he protects us as Christians, then the devil will not be able to harm us. Yes, harass us. Yes, tempt us, but not harm us. The devil does not touch us because the Son keeps us. And so, because the Son keeps us, we do not persist in sin. This is that deliverance from the evil one for which we pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which could also be translated, by the way, the evil one. Now we come to the second affirmation which is a personal and particular application of this first one. So the second certainty in which we as believers are called to live, and that is because we are born of God, we are genuinely of God. Because we are born of God, we are genuinely of God. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now we know that we are from God. Some translations say children of God. Either way, it still states the same truth. As believers, we are genuinely and truly born of God. Now because we're born of God, God remains the source of our spiritual life and being. But in dreadful contrast, as we see in this verse, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world, according to John here, is not of the evil one, as we are of God, but rather it's in his grip and under his control. Moreover, as our text indicates, it lies there. It's not pictured here as somehow struggling vigorously to be free by quietly lying, perhaps even unconsciously, in Satan's embrace. The evil does not touch us as Christians, but the world. Now remember what John means here by world. He means generally the system of humanity is organized against God. Well, world, the world in this sense is helplessly in his grasp. On the child of God, the evil one does not so much as lay his hand, but the world lies in his arms. Now, John, indeed, here, as we see, wastes no words. He blurs no issue. He states boldly the uncompromising alternative. Everyone belongs either to us, in other words, to Christ, or to the world. Meaning, therefore, that everyone is either of God or under the control of the evil one. There's no third category. There's no middle ground. Sadly today, dare I say, the line of demarcation between the church and the world is confused as evidenced too often by the fact that we adopt the world's priorities and assumptions. 
One such example of this is the so-called notion of success. We measure a church, do we not, oftentimes, not by its faithfulness to Scripture in teaching, practice, and overall ministry, but instead by this idea of success is determined by the numbers in attendance, uh, the amount collected in the offering plates, the proliferation of programs, the construction of uh, new state-of-the-art facilities, and the glamorous popularity of the preacher around whom, more often than not, a, a cult of personality develops. And for those, and especially for those of us in a Bible college, for especially those of us here in Montana Bible College preparing to serve the church by way of making disciples, let's be aware of the temptation to fall into this idea of success as the world defines it. For those of us here, that is probably one of the worst temptations to which we are potentially vulnerable and for which we need to pray vigilantly to be protected from. So it's therefore vitally important for us today to learn again that those who have not experienced a new birth are under the authority of the powers of this dark world and of their chief, the God and prince of this world. However, we also need to remember that although the world lies in the power of the evil one, it is for the sins of the whole world that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. I have to be conscious of the time. I have very definite... Uh, uh, constraints that have been given me because of another class shortly. But allow me this digression for a moment. John 3.16, in relation to this verse that we just read, is one of the most profound verses in all of Holy Scripture, but yet because we, we've memorized it so much and it's so therefore familiar to us, we easily forget the profundity of that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Think of this. An infinitely righteous and holy God loves a world so utterly wicked, so utterly sinful, so utterly resistant to him but yet he loves it and loves it so much that he would send his own son to die for it. And by world, in this case, that also includes all of us. Because before the Spirit of God changed us by way of the gospel, we were of that same world, every bit as much alienated from God, every bit as much resistant to God, every bit as much in the grasp of Satan, the prince of this world. But praise be to God. 
because we have been born again, because the Spirit of God opened our eyes by way of the gospel and so regenerated us. We are now of God. And now this brings us to the third certainty in which we are called to live as believers. And that is that we believe rightly about the Son of God. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This third affirmation is the most fundamental of the three. It undermines the entire structure of the false teacher's theology against which John was writing at this time. And I wish I had time to get into that, but time does, won't permit us. Maybe some other time we can address that. But here, it concerns the Son of God through whom alone we can be rescued from the evil one and delivered from the world which is under his control. Both revelation and redemption are God's gracious work. Without him, we can neither know God nor overcome sin. These are possible for us today only because the Son of God has come. And having come, he has given us understanding. Now these two actions, he has come and he has given, need to be viewed together. The gospel is not concerned merely with the truth that Christ has given us certain things, but that he has come. Now there's another example uh, in this letter of John emphasizing that Christianity is both historical and experiential. To put it another way, doctrine and experience are equally important. One feeds the other. And it is a false dichotomy. And by the way, John harps on this all throughout the epistle. It is a false dichotomy to pit experience or the quote-unquote practical, whatever it is that we want to call it, against doctrine. Because ultimately for the believer in Jesus Christ, doctrine revolves around who he is and what he has done. One can never be without the other. Now specifically, what he has given us is understanding which refers to the power or capacity of knowing so that we may know him who is true. Now here, God is being described simply, not simply as true, but also real. Now this is a favorite adjective of John's. See, just as Jesus called himself the true or the real bread and vine, which are the shadows of which he is the substance, so God is the ultimate reality as opposed to idols as opposed to false religions and false gods. Christ has given understanding to know this real God. And we perhaps can even translate this verse into something like this. We know as a fact that the Son of God has given us understanding to come, to perceive, and to know and experience Him who is real. Now, not only do we know him, we are also in him. Now, unlike the world, which is under the control of the evil one, we are in God, sharing his very life as well 
as being of God, which we saw in verse 19, having derived our spiritual being from him, we are also in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, it is by being his son, being in his son, Jesus Christ, that we are in him who is true. Now, both of these sentences in verse 20 teach the necessity of, of Christ's work as our mediator for both the knowledge of God and communion with God. We know him who is true only because the Son of God has come and given us understanding. We are in him who is true because we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot be in the Father without being in the Son, nor in the Son without being in the Father. So our Lord here, at the end of the letter, it here is significantly given his full title. He is Jesus, the man, Christ, the Messiah, and God's eternal son. Now, now note here the final sentence in verse 20. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is the clearest or one of the clearest affirmation of Christ's deity. He is able to join us to God in relationship because he is God himself. His death on the cross for our sins does truly achieve atonement for our sins because he is God. Because no one can save the sinner but God. And this is based on the incarnation, which we celebrate every December 25th. And the incarnation is really, we could say, it's, a found, it's probably the foundational Christological doctrine. Because everything that Christ does, if you think about it, from Bethlehem all the way, yes, even to the millennium, all of that follows from the incarnation. Because in all of those activities, Jesus Christ acts as the God-man, as one of us, as for, and also for us, but yet as God for the purpose of reconciling us who are sinners to God. The truth concerning Christ that we know, who has brought about our new birth, whereby we are truly of God, issues forth now in a succinct, practical application, which John gives finally in verse 21. And that is also the fourth certainty in which we live. But the certainty comes by way of a very specific application based on all of the other certainties that we know and in which we live as believers. And that is, keep away from false substitutes for God. That's the whole point of verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In this last sentence, in place of any a formal farewell, John uses again this tender and affectionate address, little children, which has not occurred, by the way, since chapter 3, verse 8. His final exhortation here is based on the three great assurances he had just uttered. The charge, keep yourselves from idols, arises naturally from the condition and character of a true Christian, which he has been expounding. 
The Son of God will keep that one, but this does not relieve him or us of the responsibility to keep ourselves. Now, when John tells us to keep ourselves here, he's telling us to guard ourselves. And this conveys the idea of protection, whether it be a flock, a valuable deposit, or a prisoner. So what John is admonishing us to do is to guard ourselves actively from what he calls idols. Now, what are these idols? Well, he may be uttering only a general warning that knowledge of and communion with the true God is inconsistent with the worship of idols. Alternatively, uh, John could be using idols here to refer to illusions that lead us away from reality. If taken this way, John would be saying, do not abandon the real for the illusory. In other words, don't abandon the real for the fake. Now, it's very likely that John has a particular danger in mind. And it could be very likely without getting into the details because we don't have time at this point. But Ephesus was known for its idolatry. In the ancient world, it was one of the prime centers for idolatry and magic and all that you and I would call the occult. You could read all about that uh, there in the book of Acts. And so it's very likely that John was immediately addressing that given his context. But for us, here's the application. By God's grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, in light of the three previous certainties that we just examined, we are called to guard ourselves from anything that would supplant the supremacy of God, the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And in this age, those, those illusory fake substitutes are many. And if we, could, and if we had the time, we could, uh, among all of us in this room, we could come up with a list that would just go on ad infinitum. It would just go on continuously without end. But, praise be to God, because we are born of God through the work of Jesus Christ, which then means that we believe rightly about who he is and what he has done for us, and we grow ever more in that knowledge. We are able, by his grace and by the power of his spirit, to guard ourselves from all that is in the world under control of the evil one that would seek to undermine us. And in this regard, I want to close with what John also says in this same epistle. Because everything else that we've said up to this point based on this text is so, we can confidently say with John, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask you even now that by your grace and by the power of your spirit who constantly applies to us this great redemption accomplished for us by Christ, our Lord and our Savior, that we can and we will, beginning here amongst ourselves, here at Montana Bible College, 
from there in our churches and in all the other contexts in which we function will live in the light of these certainties so that you would be glorified and magnified and that more and more people would come to know your Son as Savior. Grant this for his sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.